This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of George Skangos and Biogen. I genuinely get excited about the science. I genuinely get excited about applying that science in ways that might do some practical good for the world. And part of being successful in the biotech industry is just the ability to hang in there for a long time. How George Skangos went from young academic researcher to pragmatic CEO and turned Biogen back into a biotech powerhouse. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there's one major pitfall a lot of companies face. In the beginning, everything is laser-focused. The goals are set. The mission is clear. Everyone knows the problem they're out to solve. But then, as the company scales and grows... New projects, new ventures, new companies get added and acquired. And then everyone gets stretched too thin. And the focus moves far away from the company's core mission. And this is a common story with big companies. And sometimes it's what sinks the company. And this is a version of what almost happened to the biotech company Biogen. In the early days, Biogen was all about decoding genes and developing cutting-edge drugs. This was the late 1970s, and the scientists who started Biogen were pioneers in biotechnology. In fact, two of the founders, Walter Gilbert and Philip Sharp, actually won Nobel Prizes. And the third, Kenneth Murray, was knighted. He developed the first vaccine using genetic engineering. Biogen would go on to develop pioneering treatments for hemophilia B and multiple sclerosis. And by 2003, it had become the third biggest biotech company in the world. But by 2010, things began to slow down. A lot. The company had gone on a spree of acquiring smaller pharmaceuticals, but Biogen itself hadn't released a new drug in years. The leadership was trying to spend its way out of a stagnant financial situation, and investors were not happy. And this is the point in 2010 when George Skangos enters the picture to become Biogen's new CEO. George realized he needed to get Biogen back on track, back to what the company did best. But in order to do that, he had to make some pretty tough decisions. But we'll get to all that. Long before George Skangos ever thought he would run a major biotech company, 
He was in college studying French, and he wasn't even considering a career in science until a biology class changed his mind. The wonder of life, you know, the wonder that, you know, we all start out as a fertilized egg and we end up as people. And so I was hooked, and the next course I took was genetics, and that really hooked me. Understanding a little bit about genetics really convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. George went on to get his Ph.D., and he did some postdoc work at Yale. And eventually, he started teaching at Johns Hopkins. So he was on the academic track. But then he got a call from an old advisor, a guy named Frank Ruddle, who had become an early pioneer of the Human Genome Project. And Frank wanted George to come work with him. The company was really working on a number of different areas. They were working on and some infectious diseases, rhinovirus, you know, is just the co- most common cause of colds. And working on uh, some oncology programs, some cardiovascular issues. So it was a pretty broadly focused, or maybe you could say unfocused, little company, but with doing great science. And what I liked about the company is you could do the basic science, but then you had the capability to take the output of that science and move it forward and actually have the potential to make a, a drug that would actually help people in the real world. And what, what was the name of Frank's company? It was, well, it was called Molecular Therapeutics Incorporated. It was one of two companies, along with another company called Molecular Diagnostics Incorporated, that was set up in New Haven by Frank and two other Yale professors, a guy named Don Carruthers and a guy named Vince Marchese. Uh, They had additional high-powered academics from other institutions to advise them. That company was owned 60% by Bayer, which had funded it as an entree into R&D in the U.S. Because Bayer is a German company, obviously. Bayer is a German company, yes. And, of course, I was an academic at the time, and the ownership of the company was meaningless to me. I didn't pay any much attention to that. But uh, that was the that was the structure, and uh, of course, Bear eventually bought it completely. And, and I guess you were doing science, right? I mean, you were hired to help them with the science. Like you would go in and you would be in the lab and you would be doing research. I was, but you know, I was also then asked to participate in some business discussions and maybe discussions with other companies that that were going on. But it became, at some point, too difficult to do both. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what was that, at, at, certainly at the beginning, like, what was that like? Because I have to imagine, I mean, you're a science guy, you're an academic. I mean, you don't learn basic business skills in those two, um, in those two disciplines, right? I mean, was, was the whole world of business, like, strange to you? Was it exciting? <laughs> it was exciting. It was, I, look, part of the reason also why... I, I made this shift. I had some interpersonal skills that many of my uh, academic colleagues didn't have. Don't want to, you know, it's all they had a yeah, whole set want, of trash them. other talents. Yeah. You know, they're right. obviously very smart people doing really good science, but let's say interpersonal skills might not have been their strength. And I had a set of skills like that. And then once you start going to those meetings, you learn about the business aspects of the company gradually and over time as you're exposed to them. So they would bring you into these business meetings because they could always look at you and say, George, you know, what are your thoughts on this? And and you could weigh in on the science because presumably 
there were people in that room who didn't have a science background. So, you know, you you were sort of this expert. But but at the same time, uh, it sounds like you were learning about the business of running a, a biotech company. I was. And it was a two-way street. And I have to say, you know, Bayer bought that little company. And I worked for Bayer for 10 years. And I had, for many of those years, my boss was a fellow named Horst Meyer. He was actually one of the real strong mentors in, in my career. And he made sure I got uh, exposure to the business aspects of the company. And so he asked me to go to Germany for some couple of years, which I did, and worked in the main Bayer Research Center in Germany. And that had a very clear purpose. One was I was, my task was to take this department of 100 or so people and modernize it. And what I was getting out of it was a real understanding of how pharmaceutical R&D goes on in a major research center and, and learning about drug development. So I thought for most of those 10 years, it really was a, a two-way street. So I'm, I'm curious, when, once you made the transition, really made the transition into the, into the C-suite, let's say, from, from the lab, how did you make sure that you kept up to date with the research and what was going on? I mean, presumably, you still wanted to be on top of things, right? Or, or, or did it become more complicated? Well, it's not hard to stay on top of it at that, at that level. And it's actually kind of essential to stay on top of it at that level so you can be good, good at the job. You know, as you grow up higher and higher in the organization and you get a thousand people under you instead of a hundred, it becomes increasingly difficult to, to do that, although it still is important. And I guess that eventually happened because Bayer tapped you to become the president of operations in the U.S. in, 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 the, in the Bay Area, right? Well, yes. The, I, was, uh, I was asked to take on the task of leading all of their uh, efforts making recombinant DNA drugs. What was that like? I mean, you were leading, what, a thousand people at, at that point? Yes, about. Did you find any of that challenging or, or did, did it just come easy? Oh, well, sure. No, of course it's challenging. And, you know, look, I think it's a transition people have to make where you, you go from doing science and managing things to managing people who manage things and then to managing people who manage other people mm. who do things. And those are different skill sets. So as you get more and more people underneath you, you can't know the details of everything that they're doing. And if you did know what they're doing as well as they do, then you probably don't need them. So you're, by definition, working with people who know more about what they're doing than you do. And that's a, that's a very different set of skills, to know if they're still doing their job, to know how good they are, to know if they're telling you the truth, you know, to, to really understand them, know when to intervene, know when not to intervene. So those are, it's very different from managing science. Yeah. George, how did you deal with the, the, the corporate pressure, right? Because presumably it's a biotech company, it's a, you're running R&D, and, and, and obviously you're trying to create um, medic, medications and treatments that will save lives, but at, at the end of the day, it's a business, right? I mean, they need to make money. Right. Um, did, that, did that pressure weigh on you? Did you feel that pressure from, from the top? Um, that's always a pressure. 
you know, look, the, the reason for doing what I do, the reason why companies like these exist should be to bring drugs to patients who need them. And that's the reason to get up in the morning for me and I hope for the people who work in my current company now. That being said, you know, that, that's a very high-level statement on a, on a more granular level. You know, there are always trade-offs to be made between preserving earnings for this year and maximizing earnings in the short run versus investing for the future. Those are always judgment calls, and there's rarely a right or wrong answer. But every penny you invest in R&D that's going to pay off down the road is a penny that doesn't go to earning the bottom line this year. And so you always feel those pressures. All right. Around 1996, you're a leader at Bayer. Things are going well. You're living in California. And then you get a call from a, a, a startup, I guess, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, another biotech company that is interested in, in having you lead them. What, who were they? What, what's, what's the story? Well, yeah, I'd been at Bayer for 10 years. And so there were certain things after 10 years that I found a little bit frustrating about working in a large company like that. And so I had a little bit of, you know, things are going well. I was happy. But I, you know, there were some things that were um, bothering me a bit. What, what, was, what was bothering you? Well, process, right? When you hmm. work in such a large company, decisions often are made by committees, committees where any member of that committee can have veto power. And so I'd seen a number of programs that I thought had tremendous potential be killed for wrong reasons. And it was frustrating mm. uh, for me. Nobody won. The company lost, patients lost, everybody lost because of really bad decision making. And let's say the process became more important than the content. Mm. And that the cutting edge of all that work was not going to be done in large pharmaceutical companies. And it was going to be done in academia, and it was going to be done at startup biotech companies. And it was going to be done at startups because they would be more willing to, to take risks? Yes. That startups are often focused on some new technology, some new approach, to, in this case, to dissect the genome, to understand the genetics of disease better. And so I, I thought it was an incredibly exciting time uh, in science. And then I was approached by a company largely focused on doing the kind of things that I thought should be done. And after a lot of agonizing, it wasn't an easy decision, um, I decided to uh, make the jump. And, and this company was Exelixis? Yes. It's Exelixis, which is properly pronounced Exelixis. Ah. Right? It's a Greek word, and it means kind of evolution or forward progress. Oh, an apt name for for a biotech company. So I went from you know having a thousand people report to me to having twenty. What what were they doing there that that got you excited? You understand it was the time when it just became possible to sequence genomes. Human genome hadn't been sequenced yet, but you could sequence the genome of simpler organisms, fruit flies, and other things that are important genetic systems. And once you have the sequence and you have a few other genetic tools, then you can approach genetics in a systematic way. So, for example, if you want to identify every gene or every protein in a cell which is capable of preventing that cell from becoming a cancer cell, 
you can ask that question and you can get your hands on that set of genes and proteins. And then you have to sort through them, but some of them would then, at least in theory, turn out to be good targets for drugs that would mimic the activity and therefore find new ways, in this case, to combat cancer. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like there was some risk in leaving this big, comfortable, safe job at Bayer. Sure. To go to a startup where you had 20 people and presumably a, a comparatively tiny research budget. Were you, you weren't worried or scared at all? Well, of course I was, <laughs> of course. And I hesitated a lot. And, you know, I must have pondered this decision for several months. You know, I had a lot of discussions with my wife and as to the pros and cons. And at one point, she said to me, look, you, it's the right time. You have all the skills you need to do this. If you don't want to do it because you think it's too risky, then don't do it. But stop making excuses for why you don't want to do it. Right? So she kind of called my bluff on, on this. 
and I decided to go do it. When we come back in just a moment, George Kangos takes the helm of a tiny startup, which catches the attention of Biogen, one of the largest biotech companies in the world. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 1996, and George Skangos is the head of a biotech startup called Exelixis. It's a tiny biotech company of just 20 people competing with the likes of George's former employer, Bayer. And George's main focus is keeping the company afloat. You're a small company, and it takes incredible hubris to think that your small company can succeed in areas where most other companies and companies, you know, an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude larger have not succeeded. And you don't, at that point, think you're going to do this all by yourself. I think the strategy in a startup company like that is you're going to generate information and reagents that will have value and that will attract partnerships with larger companies who can contribute expertise and technology and, and money that you don't have as a startup. So, so, so you are, you know, you're this really kind of measured, thoughtful guy. And, and, and I'm trying to imagine you, the kind of CEO you, you, you became. I mean, were you, were you like a cheerleader? Were you, did you find charisma? Did you have charisma? Were you like rallying the troops? What, how did your style develop? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a measured, thoughtful guy now, but I wasn't born that way. So I was, um, I don't know, I, I would describe myself as genuine. I genuinely get excited about the science. I genuinely get excited about applying that science in ways that might do some practical good for the world. And part of being successful in the biotech industry is just the ability to hang in there for a long time. Huh. You know, we're in a business where the product development cycles are long where the failure rate is really high. And so you have to have staying power to be able to stay in there through two or three product cycles. You know, and still have to have a little bit of luck that one of your first few things will, will work. So it, it sounds like Exelixis was probably not profitable. No, Exelixis, uh, you know, went public in 2000 and became profitable last year. Wow. So it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Look, it's a challenging business. It's a hard business, right? Yeah. Because drugs, you know, alter biology. And biology is incredibly complicated. And it's still not possible to predict precisely what will happen when you alter biology in a, in a precise way. And so it's still a, um, an area where there's a, a lot of failure. Hmm. So you have to assume that profitability really isn't the key measure for success in, in that industry? Well, for investors in the biotech industry, the company will become public. The stock is then tradable. It will go up and down over time. Exelix has been a great example. We did an IPO. The stock was at 13 bucks. It went up to 50. Wow. You know, it went down to three. And <sighs> it's now, you know, now it's hanging in there call it around 20, up and down. But there's opportunities for investors to make money without the company being profitable. Did you feel like, 
I don't know, anxiety during your time there to, to get to profitability quickly? Or, or were you kind of relaxed about that? Um, I wouldn't say anxiety. You, you obviously have to get there. The immediate issue is keeping the company funded in a company like that. You don't have products to sell. You're not getting any product revenues. You have an R&D budget that may be a couple hundred million dollars a year. And so the question is, how do you get that couple hundred million dollars to keep the company going, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's a lot of money. And so, you know, you do partnerships with larger companies who will pay you money. You sell some stock and you keep the company going. So you end up, I guess, with, with Exelixis for like 14 years? Yes. And then I guess sometime around uh, 2010, you get a call from a headhunter from from Biogen, which is right. at that point one of the biggest biotech companies in the world. Well, I I got the call from the headhunter, and I said I wasn't interested. Why? Uh, well, Biogen had had, you know, Carl Icahn had done a proxy contest. He had three members elected to the board. The you know company was in the news about the contentious nature of the board and the company and it just didn't seem like anything I wanted to jump into the middle you, of. You right? did not you did not want to deal with like an activist investor like Carl Icahn. Right. Why would you, you know, <laughs> choose to go do that, right? So I said no. And uh, the headhunter called back a couple of weeks later and said, you know, some of the board members really would like to speak with you and a couple of them will be in the Bay Area. Why don't you just go have lunch? And so I did. And, you know, I became convinced that the board actually did not have an agenda, was honestly trying to get a CEO to take the company forward and do the right things, that they would be supportive of a number of different approaches. Um, And so, you know, I decided I was interested in the job. And, you know, fortunately, they eventually offered it to me. And so off I went. Give me a sense of what was going on at Biogen when you took over in 2010. You've got an activist investor who is criticizing the company for for what and and who wants to achieve what? Well, the company was trying to do too many things. They had a business in multiple sclerosis and that, you know, spreads into an interest in neurodegeneration. Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease, so that spreads into thinking about other autoimmune diseases. They're working on cardiovascular diseases. They're working on oncology. And to get back to one of your questions from before, that's the same number of diseases that, say, Pfizer is working on. Hmm. And so Biogen isn't nearly big enough to do all those different things with excellence and compete successfully. Was the company losing money at the time? No, they were making money, uh, but they weren't making as much as they should have. You shouldn't be wasting money, right? That's the first tenet that, you know, you can debate how much you should spend on R&D for the future as opposed to saving it for this year's profits. But if you're spending it for the future, you should be spending it wisely. And so I thought that some of the things Biogen was doing were unlikely to generate value in the long term. You felt like they were doing too much. Too much, yes. I mean, I have to assume that if at the, at the time you arrived to Biogen in 2010, they, have, they had not had a new drug since 2004, I have to assume that that became a priority of yours. Like, like I mean, were you thinking, we need to, we need to release a new drug? Well... Yes. Look, the CEO who was there before me, Jim Mullen, laid a lot of the ground for the 
products that we got to the market when I was there because things take so long to get through the cycle. So he didn't get to stay around to see the fruition. So, you know, he'd done a good job in, in, in a lot of ways. So my job, and we had this pipeline of things coming through, that Biogen, as I found it, could not have gotten all those drugs through the remainder of their development on the market. They just weren't capable of doing that. And so, you know, we got the company shaped up, we got it efficient, we got it focused, and so we were able to execute and, you know, we got a lot of drugs approved. So when you got to Biogen um, and you kind of looked out and, and did your assessment, presumably it took you six months to a year to really get a handle on it. Um, what did you see? What was what was morale like? What was the culture like there? Was it strong? Uh, no, the culture needed some work. And I think people were a little bit discouraged. You know, there were a number of things to do. One was kind of stop the bleeding, stop spending money on things that weren't going to be productive. Closed down a big research site in San Diego. Stopped all cancer research, which was contrary to the fashion where everybody's jumping into cancer research, but we just weren't competitive. Sold off the cardiovascular assets, cut the number of R&D programs basically in half, tried to weed out some fat that had grown into the organization. We worked uh, simultaneously on the culture. I think people were afraid to speak up. A new CEO, they don't know what to expect uh, from me. And so they weren't taking enough risks. There was too much of a hierarchical culture, and people were more afraid of failing than desirous of success. So how did you create the space to make people comfortable to fail? Well, that's an ongoing effort. I will say it's still an ongoing effort. But, you know, I did a no number of things. You find some examples where people have failed. You celebrate those. If they were good failures that led to something better in the end, make those examples for the organization. If you're in meetings and somebody challenges you, you react, you know, you say thank you for that and appreciate the comment and set a role model. And then you have to expect your people who are other people in the management team to behave in the same way. George, I should mention that I think within a year of taking over Biogen, uh, this company became one of the best performers in the S&P 500, uh, which, is, as you know, is a, is a great achievement. And then you're off to the races, right? I mean, the company's doing well. You're starting to kind of change the culture. And then 2014, the stock price just plunges, which has, I mean, has got to be stressful, right? I mean, you're leading this company. So what happened? Why did that happen? Well, we had, yeah, I, we had a, a great new drug called Tecfidera for multi treatment of multiple sclerosis. And it was one of the first oral drugs on the market. So instead of having to get injections at some frequency, people could take a pill every day. And people liked it, and it worked well. And then it had a safety issue. Well, what was the safety issue? Well, there's a disease called uh, PML, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is associated with many drugs that downregulate immune responses. And it can be fatal. If it's not fatal, it can be debilitating. <laughs> and so fortunately, it occurs very rarely. But there was a case with a patient taking Tecfidera. Mm. And it cast out 
on the future because when you get one case, you don't know if that's an isolated case or it's the first of whether there going to be 100 cases and cause the drug to be withdrawn. And so investors panic, hmm. and that's why the stock dropped so precipitously. When that happened and in, in, in that case came about where this patient had this complication from, from the drug, it seems to me that, that pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies circle the wagons, and they become defensive, and they, and they get lawyered up, and they say nothing. And I, just as a consumer, that's always bothered me because you always want just, – just want somebody to come out and level with you and say, hey, this is such a tragedy. We're, we're, we're investigating this. We, we believe our drug is safe, but obviously this is a tragedy, and, and we're going to throw all of our resources to find out what happened. How did how mm-hmm. did you guys respond to it at the time? Well, I would like to think we responded more along the lines that you suggested. They, you know, announced the case. Uh, we didn't know at that point whether this was one case, whether it was going to be occur at some frequency, but rarely, or whether it was the tip of an iceberg. Mm. Uh, remember, Biogen has sells a drug called Tysabri. Tysabri is an incredibly potent drug to treat patients with MS, and it, it really does help a lot of patients. Some patients actually get a reversal of their symptoms and improve while on Tysabri. Tysabri actually, shortly after its introduction, also was associated with this disease, PML, and there were many cases. And so the company actually voluntarily withdrew the drug from the market. Hmm. So many patients complained because, you know, their view was we understand the risk, but this drug is helping us to have a normal life. Let us decide if we want to take that risk or not. Just tell us honestly what the risk is and we will decide. And so the company together with the FDA actually put the drug back on the market. I mean, were your were – your, was your board panicking or – were investors? I mean, were people saying, you know, George, this is bad. Like, stop this. Or, or well, of, of, yeah. Well, of course. I, look, the the company, you know, from 2010 until that happened, nothing bad had happened. Everything huh. was good, right? Yeah. Drugs got approved. Yeah. You know, revenues increasing, earnings increasing, yeah. people feeling good about the company. Every investors are happy. The board's happy. Employees are happy. It's it's a good time. All of a sudden, this happens. You know, you now have a drug that's still selling between three and four billion dollars a year. It's still a really good drug, still a very favorable risk-benefit profile for for patients. But it wasn't what the original expectations were. That causes investors to become unhappy. Yeah, it puts pressure on the board and it puts pressure on the management. And that's when you really test it. That's when these issues about, you know, because now revenues are down and earnings are down. And so you can get earnings back up to some extent just by cutting costs. And so then the discussion is, you know, how much should we really be spending? And, you know, how are we spending it? And things come under much more scrutiny, yeah. certainly from the board, but also from the management. You have to ask those questions. Well, right? well, if you were, those are, if those you are were, serious issues. If you were coming under pressure, I mean, and, and, and if, as you say, that was the test, how did you handle that? Did you... Were you calm? Were you nervous inside? Were you sort of outwardly even keeled and, and inner turmoil or, or, or what? Yeah, look, I, I think all of the above, I think. Of course it puts pressure on you. And as the CEO of a company in that situation, there's tremendous pressure. 
And you can't not feel the anxiety inside, just comes with the territory. You have to maintain some equilibrium and some calm. You still have to lead the company. You have all the employees also worried about what's going to happen. And so you have to make sure that the employees get the reassurance they need. And so you have to maintain your composure as, as a, a leader. It doesn't mean you don't feel it on the inside. But How do, how do, um, how do you do that? Do you, what is the way that you do that? Do you, I don't know, do you meditate? Do you, uh, do you talk to your <laughs> wife about these things? I like, well, how do you do it? Yeah, I certainly talk to my wife about it. My wife's been tremendously helpful to me my whole career. And, you know, I think you have to keep things in perspective. It's not like we're losing money. We're making less money than we thought we were going to make. Are you doing everything you can to support your products? Okay, the Tecfidera, although it had a case of PML, we believed and still believe now it's proven to be the case. It's a relatively safe and good drug for people. Again, you want to put the drug in, in its, you know, in a positive light, but you have to be honest yeah. about what the drug does, what its safety is. I mean, you have to be anyway. It's regulated. And you have to be. But I, it's the right thing to do. I mean, clearly you weathered that storm. Um, and then you left in 2016. You, you stepped down uh, when the company sort of on this high. Uh, why? Why did you leave? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, for some personal uh, reasons, you know, my wife stayed in San Francisco, and she's on the faculty at, at UCSF. She has her own career. I have two grown children who live in San Francisco. I have grandchildren who are here. You were in Boston going back and forth. Yeah. And so, you know, probably two weekends out of three, I would fly back to San Francisco. Hmm. I think there were some issues where I saw the future of the company a little differently from how some of the members of the board saw it. I thought that the company needed, you know, a CEO. I'd seen the company through a couple of tough times. The company seemed to be going well. And uh, it was a good time for a transition, you know, for a new CEO to come in, be there for several more years um, and provide some continuity for the company. So you want to leave a company when it's doing well, not when it's doing badly. Sure. George, you started out as a a lab researcher, and then uh, and that was sort of your trajectory. You were in academia, you were doing research, then you became a supervisor and a manager and worked your way up. And, and, and over, the, over that time, became obviously the CEO of a huge company. I mean, do you think that you were born to be a leader, that you knew how to do this intuitively, or do you think you became one? I think both. I think I was born with some set of skills where I could learn new things, certainly about science, but also about people. I think I have a, an ability to ascertain what's really important. So I think there's a skill in knowing when to dive in, when not to dive in. So yeah, I think there's some innate personality characteristics for whatever reason, coupled with a lot of learning along the way. That's George Skangos. Shortly after leaving Biogen, George became the CEO and director at a new biotech company, Veer Biotechnology. The company focuses on chronic infectious diseases like hepatitis B, tuberculosis, and HIV. As for Biogen, at the time of this interview, its market cap reached more than $60 billion. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.